<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Yesterday, yeah, yesterday morning, Louise and I were walking into work, and I'm like, uh, what's that big orange thing in the sky? Is that a UFO? <laughs> no, it was the sun. It was uh, rising in the east, and of course, there's all these forest fires here in Oregon to the east and the south of us. It's, it's getting grim, and now there's, uh, in the news, we've talked many times on this program. Uh, in fact, I, I wrote about this in one of my ADHD books back 15 years ago. And I wrote about it in The Last Hours of Humanity, my really scary climate change uh, little kind of booklet. It's only about 100 pages about the collapse of the Gulf Stream, the collapse of the North Atlantic meridional overturn current, whatever it's called. Uh, you know, the, the Great Conveyor Belt is how, is how it's referred to in popular literature and how I remember it. And if this thing goes down in a matter of two or three or four years, you will start to see Europe, large chunks of Europe become uninhabitable. And the east coast of the United States getting swamped and, uh, you know, with water, with rising sea levels and massive storms. I mean, it's just, it, it will completely alter the, the weather patterns of planet Earth. They are very concerned that it is starting to wobble right now in a big way. Now it has been wobbling for you know, it's been getting progressively weaker and weaker for about a thousand years. So this is not exclusively climate change. But the melting of the Greenland ice shelf, the glaciers on Greenland, seem to be the thing that's driving it because it's pouring fresh water into the point where, into that place off the coast of England where the great conveyor belt, uh, the Gulf Stream, hits and then hits the end of its surface run and goes down and starts heading back toward the southern tip of Africa underwater. So uh, uh, grim stuff. On the line with us right now is Greg Pallas, the investigative journalist, the author of How Trump Stole 2020. GregPallas.com is his website. You can tweet him at Greg underscore Pallast, P-A-L-A-S-T. And Greg, this is just an amazing story you are pushing out here about this guy who's taking on Chevron. Tell us about it. Okay, Steve Donziger is under house arrest. He is the attorney who won a $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron Corporation in Ecuador for poisoning the people of the Amazon. I was down there doing my own investigation for BBC television, and I met with, for example, the chief of the COFAN. His son 
had gone swimming in a five-year-old son went swimming in a pool that was shiny with you know it was just shiny and looked nice in a in the jungle the rainforest and he came up vomiting blood and dropped dead in his father's arms so the chief i went with him he's wearing war paint he's naked from the waist up and he files a lawsuit against chevron for his son's death and the death of his other son who died of cancer and they're laughing and, at and him. And hang on just a second. This I'm, is because that slick on the water that his son dove into was a petroleum dump by Chevron, right? Uh, you know, that's, that's An the... illegal petroleum dump <laughs> by Chevron's Texaco unit. Illegal. Okay. Right. You can't do that stuff in the U.S. You can't just dump your oil sludge. It's poison. It kills. But this was the Bolivian and forest, he... right? Yeah, or the Ecuadorian, Ecuadorian forest, rainforest jungle. Yeah. up the Amazon. So I was up there in the Amazon with the, with the chief, and he filed, and they're laughing at him. Four years later, 2011, he wins $9.5 billion because he got help from a lawyer named Steve Donziger. This is Barack Obama's Harvard Law School mate who could have made a killing. Instead, he gave up everything, every penny, every job to work in the past decade and a half to defend the uh, indigenous people of the Amazon rainforest against Chevron and the oil company. So why is this lawyer in... in, Why is this lawyer in home detention? Why is he under arrest? Yeah, and he's facing jail time on October 8th. He will be sentenced for so-called contempt of court because Chevron ran around looking for um, a judge, and they found a right-wing judge named Lewis Kaplan who demanded that Donziger turn over his cell phones and computers so they could identify which indigenous people were going after Chevron and insiders in the corporation giving away their secrets, which could be a death sentence for these people. Steve refused. That's just a civil question. And because he appealed the decision that he should turn over his cell phones and computers, he was sentenced without trial to two years of home detention, and now he's facing a prison term. But here's the problem, Tom. Federal prosecutors told the judge to go fly that this is ridiculous. You can't charge a lawyer with, uh, put a lawyer behind bars because he won't turn over his personal documents. Well, and he's protecting a whistleblower, essentially. And he's protecting whistleblowers. It's client confidentiality, et cetera. So the, so the feds laughed him off. You know what the judge did? For the first time in U.S. history, he appointed Chevron's law firm to act as the prosecution in a trial against Steve Donziger. Donziger asked for a jury trial because, hey, have you read the Constitution lately? You get a jury trial and a criminal charge? And the yeah. judge said, no, you can't have a jury, and I'm going to bar you from making a public defense. And he said, you're guilty, and you're going to jail. What jurisdiction is this happening in? Who's this judge? In this, uh, it's Lewis Kaplan ordered this, and then he picked another judge to work with him who's from the Federalist Society, you know, the, the Koch operation that right. pumps out these ultra-right judges. Yeah, they brought like us say, uh, the feds, Brett Kavanaugh. The yeah. feds re- even even uh, Trump's Justice Department would not prosecute uh, Donziger, the lawyer for the indigenous people. But so they literally used um, uh, the. Uh, is this the a state court, court or a, fe- a federal? This is a federal court. Federal court. In which and state? So what happened is in New York in New and York. Southern Thank District. You. So what's happened is is that you literally have Chevron's own lawyers acting as the prosecution. This has never been done in American history, where you have a corporate prosecution on a criminal charge of an individual citizen, and of course denied a jury trial. It's insane. You have 60 Nobel Prize winners. You have Senator Markey and a whole bunch of Congress people. Uh, 
screaming about this. Every human, uh, every human rights group, like Human Rights Watch, Amazon Watch, etc., um, who are screaming about this corporate prosecution of this human rights lawyers and his whistleblowers. I mean, it is. And meanwhile, by the way, Chevron has refused to pay the nine billion dollars. And, you know, I have to tell you, I was down there, and they also went after journalists, including a guy named Greg Pallas. They tried to get me fired from BBC. They fired a, a, filed a formal complaint. I had a, a one-year court hearing myself. I saved my job, but now they, they can't stand Steve Donziger, this so, human rights so going up against Chevron. What, is, what is being done about this, Greg? I, you know, I understand that you and a bunch of other people are, are trying to highlight this, and that's and so am I. It's why you're on this program right now. But is there, is there anything that can be done? Yes, today, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and uh, in 15 cities around the world, from San Francisco to Los Angeles. I'll be in Los Angeles. Go to gregpalace.com for the information. Uh, Tel Aviv, and also in uh, Quito, Ecuador, will be uh, protesting this, Im- this impending imprisonment of Steve Donziger. He's already under house arrest for two years. This is ridiculous. Is there is there anybody that this can be? Ta- I mean, you know, the Biden administration, the Department of Justice, the I mean, who uh, members of Congress? Is there anybody who could be petitioned or called or contacted or lobbied about this? Yes, I think now that we have Biden, and it's time for the Justice Department to step in and say two things. Number one, no more corporate corporations appointed to prosecute individuals that they don't like. This has never happened in America. They just history. lost nine and a half billion dollars, too. Yes. Yeah, and two, free Steve Donziger, mm-hmm. his human, great human rights lawyer. What is he doing under arrest? And three, Chevron, pay the money you owe to the people you killed. It's that simple. And I got to tell you, uh, one of the reasons they went after me is because I went on BBC television and showed a document where the where the uh, president of Chevron personally ordered the removal of all documents and their destruction that showed that the company had dumped oil illegally. He literally, I have the documentation, and wow. that they, that's why they wanted to pull me off the air. Wow. Wow. Okay, so, yeah, well. So let's get, let's get Biden, let's put a little pressure on Biden and uh, the Justice Department uh, and, uh, you know, Merrick Garland to say no more corporate prosecutions. Yeah, I'm with you. So you can find out all about it over at Greg Palast, G-R-E-G-P-A-L-A-S-T dot com. And you can tweet to Greg and follow the whole thing on Twitter, Greg underscore Palast. If you're not following him, you should be. Greg, thank you. Thank you for dropping by today and keeping us up to date. You're the best, Tom. Thank you. You too. On the line with us is Julian Brave Noisecat, the vice president of policy and strategy at Data for Progress, proud member of the Canham Lake Band and I'm not sure how to pronounce your tribe there, Julian. You want to give it to me? Tukaskin. Thank you. Tukaskin. And the descendant of the Lilwat Nation of Mount Curie. JulianBraveNoiseCat.com is the website. Julian is also, uh, along with me, a presenter at Bioneer's Twitter handle, JNoiseCat. And uh, Julian, uh, give me a Native American perspective, if you would, on the incoming administration, on the cabinet picks that we've seen. What do you think? How are things shaking out? Well, firstly, I would just say that my perspective is obviously just one perspective. And there's, you know, many perspectives, of course, across Indian country. There's 574 federally recognized tribes, American Indian and Alaska Native tribal communities. So 
you know, hard to say that there is one one native perspective. But, you know, I would generally say that there is a good deal of hope for the incoming Biden administration. One of the chief reasons for this is that Representative Deb Holland of the Laguna Pueblo and the first congressional district of New Mexico is being considered for Secretary of Interior, which is a cabinet position. The Secretary of Interior leads the Department of the Interior, which is the agency that manages public lands, natural resources, and also the government-to-government relationship with those 574 tribes across the country. Uh, And we've actually never had a Native Interior Secretary. We've never had a Native Cabinet Secretary. And so the potential for Congresswoman Holland to be tapped for that role, you know, I think has gotten lots of Indian country incredibly excited. And for that reason, you know, we've seen broad groundswell of support behind her candidacy coming out of tribal leaders, as well as progressives and environmental activists. And so, you know, I think obviously a change in power is is a moment of both excitement and I think a little bit of anxiety for, for folks who are engaged in politics. The moment where we transition from campaign promises to policy implementation. But I think there is some, some hope that the uh, Biden administration could make some potentially historic headway on indigenous rights and tribal affairs. Well, and the, and the current uh, head of the, the Interior Department, who, as I recall, is a coal lobbyist or an oil lobbyist before he got this job, has been quite enthusiastic about raping and destroying lands that have been sacred to indigenous people on this continent for centuries, for millennia. It seems like such a good thing that Deb Holland is being considered for that. Are there other kind of high points, or do you want to speak to some of the things that Interior has done that are so destructive that you'd like to see undone? Yeah, so, you know, the Trump administration's record when it comes to environmental issues, when it comes to the management of public uh, and federal lands and natural resources has been um, probably one of the worst of certainly the the 21st century, if not, you know, going back for a good deal of time. Uh, Just, you know, a quick sort of cursory overview. Uh, The Trump administration removed uh, sacred Native lands like the Bears Ears National Monument and Grand Staircase Escalante um, from sort of their their protected national monument, national park status, and started opening them up to extractive industries like mining, oil, and gas. Um, Actually, on the 7th, the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, uh, which, if your listeners will recall, was included. um, Drilling and leasing permitting was opened up in it uh, through the Trump tax cuts for billionaires and corporations uh, as sort of an accounting trick to say that the Trump administration had um, some revenue sources lined up to pay for those tax cuts, which you were going to, you know, sort of um, bankrupt the Treasury in favor of putting money in the pockets of already very wealthy people. Um, leasing in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is going to open up uh, on December 7th. Uh, and again, you know, that is also land that is considered sacred by indigenous peoples, specifically the, the Gwich'in, uh, who live in uh, Alaska, as well as the, the northern parts of Canada across the border and rely on uh, the caribou uh, herds that move through that landscape for their their sustenance and cultural uh, survival. So, you know, the Trump administration has had a really tough record 
on these issues. And I think that, you know, obviously putting a Native American and a environmental champion and a climate champion in that role would be great. It's a big deal. JulianBraveNoiseCat.com and uh, JNoiseCat on Twitter. Julian, thanks for dropping by. Great talking to you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. It's the place where despair is not an option. with us, the executive director of the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, centerforenvironmentalrights.org, F-O-R, centerforenvironmentalrights.org is their website. Rights of Nature is the Twitter handle. And Mari, welcome back to the program. I understand that the first Rights of Nature type of case is being brought before, for the very first time, a tribal court here in the United States. Tell us about this. Yes, it was filed yesterday within the White Earth Tribal Court. The White Earth Band of Ojibwe is part of the larger Chippewa Nation. And this is a case brought by Monoman, or Wild Rice, as well as the tribal government itself and tribal members to enforce their rights, um, their rights of nature, the right to Monoman or Wild Rice, as well as their treaty rights to hunt, fish, and gather off reservation. So here you have, as a plaintiff, a plant species, the wild rice, bringing a case to enforce its own legal rights. The White Earth Band was the first to establish a law to recognize that a plant species, Monoman, wild rice, has legal rights. And those rights now apply on reservation as well as to those treaty rights off reservation that tribal members hold and that were guaranteed by the U.S. government. And they're seeing those rights being infringed upon by the construction of Enbridge Line 3, the tar sands oil pipeline that's running close by and on their treaty lands, which is going to now use 5 billion, excuse me, billion gallons of water to construct that pipeline, which will obviously have significant impacts on the wild rice, on water, on the habitat, on their right to hunt, fish, and gather on their guaranteed treaty lands. Oh, this is absolutely fascinating. There's so many pieces to this. Um, first of all, it seems that, I mean, you know, from at, at the very least, the kind of gauzy dances with wolves uh, uh, notion that most people have of Native American uh, spirituality uh, suggests that Native American communities would be more inclined to recognize the rights of nature as it's been intrinsic to their culture forever. Um, unless I'm wrong here, I mean, you know, again, I'm not Native American, um, then would uh, what we call Western civilization or the United States, is, is this something that we're seeing across other Native American groups that, you know, acknowledging the rights of nature as part of their set of laws? We're seeing um, a growing move in that direction. I mean, many have said that the rights of nature, recognizing the rights of Mother Earth, the rights of Pachamama, as it's called in Ecuador's constitution, is really a codification of indigenous values, the relationship to 
uh, Mother Earth, Father Sky, and putting that into written law for the first time. So the White Earths are one tribal nation that have established, in this case, rights of Manoma and the wild rice. Um, you have the Yurok in Northern California, for example, recognizing rights of the Klamath River, the Menominee, and Wisconsin recognizing rights of the Menominee River. This is very closely tied in with their traditional relationship, cultural relationship with their traditional lands and looking to protect them in this way that recognizes they have an, an even inherent basic rights to even exist. This idea that wild rice even has a basic right to exist, but beyond that, a right to flourish, a right to regenerate, a right to evolve, a right to water, a right to a healthy climate. Because as we're seeing with the building of this kind of pipeline, the Enbridge Line 3, it's impacting not only water, of course, 5 billion gallons of water, but also having significant impacts on climate change when you're moving all that dirty tar sands oil um, through the pipeline and ultimately to be burned. Yeah, yeah. To what extent is this, or let's just do a recap, actually, of how the rights of nature are playing out outside of the Native American communities? You and I have talked about this in the past. Where, where are we at mm -hmm. with, with the various rights of nature efforts? You guys are at the forefront of this work, you know, with the, uh, the Center for Democratic Environmental Rights, centerforenvironmentalrights.org. Where are we at, and is this a tool that can be used to deal with climate change. I mean, it's gonna be 106 degrees again here in, in Portland, Oregon, uh, apparently next week. We've got another heat dome coming. And, uh, you know, climate change is starting to seriously kick our asses in this country. Uh, yeah, I think that's fair to say. I'm in Spokane, Washington, and we don't go outside today because of the smoke. So climate change is extremely real for us right now. Mm -hmm. um, but what we're seeing within the rights of nature movement, both within the United States, with tribal nations as well as around the world. We have Ecuador now has it in its constitution. We worked on that in 2008. Bolivia, Uganda, um, Bangladesh, Colombia, India, all of these have national laws as well as court decisions recognizing the rights of nature, including specific ecosystems, um, including rivers. So we see this growing effort in this direction. Um, within the United States, the most recent law that was adopted was in Orange County, Florida, on Election Day last November, where the people there established the rights of waterways. And Orange County is now the largest jurisdiction within the United States to establish the rights of nature and law. And earlier this year, they filed the first court case um, in U U.S. courts to enforce those rights. So you have rivers and other waterways enforcing their rights against a proposed development that will destroy waterways, destroy wetlands. So just they're defending even the most basic right of nature to exist. So we're seeing a lot of momentum um, with this case on White Earth, in the Orange County case, and in lawmaking around the world. Am I correct in assuming that this will eventually end up before the U.S. Supreme Court and that might not be a good thing? We'll see what happens. I mean, there's a growing momentum here. Um, this is really the first time that a tribal court is going to be taking this on. The first hearing date is currently set for August 25th. We'll see what develops from there. But I, I think it's really important for us to understand, you know, within our own movement, what's happening, that this is a big step forward to have not only um, jurisdictions, including the White Earth Band of Ojibwe, to establish a law and attempt to enforce that law, um, that's a big step forward in the development of this movement. I know there's a lot of eyes on this. 
Um, so we're really looking forward to that day in court and seeing if we can, number one, get an injunction um, against this pipeline development and against the taking of the water and to establish off-reservation that there are inherent rights of Monoma or wild rice and inherent rights of tri- tribal members to gather um, the wild rice off-reservation on their treaty guaranteed lands. Right. Am I correct in assuming that the, the, the position of the pipeline people is, oh yeah, this whole rights of nature thing and the wild rice has rights, um, that's just a, a new wedge, a new cudgel that you're using to come after our pipeline that you don't like? <laughs> Listen, the, they are taking water, they are polluting, they're doing all these things and, of course, contributing in a major way to climate change. Um, and people are simply trying to defend themselves. You have yeah. water protectors that are getting arrested along the pipeline route because they're trying to protect water. Um, and you have the corporation's own security people coming and getting involved. So, you know, it, it's the world is turned upside down that we're mm. punishing people who are just trying to protect something as basic as having clean drinking water. Yeah, no, I get um, it. Mar- things, Mar- need to, things need to turn around fast. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Mari, uh, real quickly, uh, where, where do tribal courts exist in the spectrum or the, the ecosystem of, uh, of courts in the United States, state courts, district courts, circuit courts? You know, federal courts, U.S. courts, this court, Supreme Court, all that kind of stuff. How, what, who do, they, to whom do they answer? Where, where would appeals be here, be heard, for example? Well, here they have. I mean, the White Earth Band, the Ojibwe, part of the Chippewa Nation. They're a federally recognized tribe. They're a sovereign nation. They have their own tribal court system, um, and so this tribal court, under the White Earth governing laws, has both on reservation and off-reservation. That is, they're established an off-reservation court in order specifically to protect those treaty rights of tribal members to hunt, fish, and gather. And this is the first time that any tribal court is going to be hearing a rights of nature case to enforce those rights both on and off-reservation. Um, and so we'll see how that develops from there. Um, and it's, you know, it's innovative. It's the first time it's going to happen, so we'll see how it plays out. Yeah. Well, Mari, uh, after the hearing in, uh, what did you say, August 25th, I think you said, please let us know what's, how it shakes out, okay? Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Mari. Mari Margle. And uh, this, uh, you know, with, with the, uh, the executive director of the Center for Democratic and Environmental Rights, centerforenvironmentalrights.org. Check it out. Rights of Nature on Twitter. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week 
by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. David in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Hey, David, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I wanted to bring up a really thorny issue, and this is basic to the whole idea of, of carbon capture, our society, sustainability of society, and this is revisiting all our engineering standards, all our engineering codes and our specifications. You, here's an example. When you look at what Jimmy Carter did about zero energy housing, and that that was a standard that he pushed and for engineering so that housing would be built to not require heat input and cooling inputs. And, of course, when Reagan came in, oh, no, we can't do that. Well, he's ripping off the solar panels off the White House. He was also completely dis dismantling all that war footwork that they've been doing. Now, we talk about CO2 capture, and we're talking about heating. Now, in the Midwest and here, of course, much of most of the country is either natural gas or it's going to be oil based. So when we talk about CO2 and we want to end the CO2, yes, the transportation part of cars and stuff, that's an obvious and simple. But we start getting this feedback loop that we're going to have hotter we're going to have hotter hotter days, more erratic weather. That's you know, that's baked in. We already, we already know have that. What's your point, David? Where are you going with all this? Then we've got to all the engineering schools, everything, all the assumptions that we have about planned obsolescence, about how the lifespan of building materials. We don't do energy. We don't have energy uh, costs associated with bricks, with glass, with concrete. So you sit mm. when they when they tear down a house, they just bulldoze it, put it in grabbers, and take it to a dump. Nobody's out there trying to chip out the bricks or save the glass or, you know, save, recycle the building materials because the energy cost to inputs into building those things are not considered at all. And this gets back to engineering standards and what we yeah. are teaching the civil engineers and the architects and the engineers, the whole idea of planned obsolescence, we throw it out. You and I are the same. No, I, I get your point. So are you proposing that we change... Um, that the federal government, uh, you know, change the way that they define things or that uh, engineering schools start, uh, you know, looking at building renewability, essentially, into their equations, as it were, or into their education? I still yes. don't understand specifically what you're calling for. Well, this isn't just to the United States because it affects the entire world. And yes, it's Obviously. calling into everybody. It's calling into question our basis that we are using in our design of our future because we have painted ourselves in this hole where we do not recycle. So we do not we do not have mandatory ability to repair. Everything is throw yeah. one package and throw it out. And we're both old enough yeah. to have a collective I get it. model. I get it. I'm, so I'm with you, David. And, and while we're at it, uh, I think that we should, uh, you know, uh, underwriters, laboratories, standards, 
uh, changed back about 20 years ago for power supplies. And, and what it did was it caused everybody to do these external power supplies. We call them wall warts, which are just parasitic. They're consuming, you know, trillions of watts of energy every day uh, nationwide. You know, we need to do away with that, too. Spot on. John Paul in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Hey, John Paul, what's up? Well, Tom, there's a, a lot of great stuff happening with hydrogen, and there's a, still a controversy about what caused the Hindemith explosion. Uh, there was a guy named Bain who did a lot of research on it and discovered that it was really the coating on the outside of the Hindenburg that caused the explosion. True that the hydrogen contributed to that after it was exploded, but hydrogen doesn't oh, explode easily. You can put it, you can put it in a tank and shoot a bullet into it; and it won't explode. It'll just uh, oh yeah, it didn't out. explode; it burned. I mean, you, you watch the old video yeah, of that. It, it wasn't exploding, the, it was burning. It, it burned because of the coating on the outside of the Hindenburg. Uh, not I'll bet it was some sort of oil-derived uh, stuff to make it airproof, waterproof. No, it was, aluminum. It was, an, it was an aluminum-based coating that was, oh. it was uh, sprayed or painted yeah, on. aluminum burns really hot. Yeah, and uh, so that's, that's really what that was about. Now, as far as the hydrogen as a fuel... Uh, that's being worked on, and, and there's quite a few solutions in the works, some of which are already being used to uh, use metal hydrides, for instance, to uh, store the hydrogen and use the excess heat from the fuel cell engine to uh, release the hydrogen out of the hydride. And that's been working hmm. real well. They're also doing uh, storage in high-pressure tanks with um, much more efficient materials that make the tanks a lot lighter John Paul, weight. it sounds like you know the science of this. I'm assuming when you say a metal hydride, uh, sort of like an oxide, you're talking about an atom that has acquired an, uh, you know, uh, an a- or a molecule that has acquired an atom of hydrogen. Um, That's right. Uh, you know, thus That's turning, right. turning yeah. the, el- the elements, the atom it, into it a molecule. It absorbs it. Yeah. Um, and then it what then are, the, what are the principal metals that are able to do that? A couple of different companies that are doing this. Uh, a company called High Tech in Oregon is doing it. But I've been reading about this stuff for about 20 years, and it's been moving along slowly, but we're getting quite a ways. You know, there are thousands and thousands of forklifts that use hydrogen. They don't mind having to have heavier tanks because they need counterweight anyway on those forklifts. I didn't, I didn't know that. I thought those were natural gas forklifts. That's hydrogen. There's probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 forklifts throughout the world that use hydrogen as, as a fuel. For so refueling them? Do they just have a local hydrolysis setup yeah, with a tap water 15, and a tank? They have hydrogen stored, and it takes about 15 minutes to refuel a forklift tank. So mm-hmm. it's, it's pretty efficient. It's much more efficient than charging a battery. And uh, yeah. now the other thing is, that, you know, there there are lots of hydrogen fueled fuel cell cars on the market. Toyota has has uh, been producing them for a while, and Japan yep. is talking about eliminating all internal combustion engines. I don't know what they're saying by 2050, and they're going to hydrogen. Hydrogen is the fuel of the future, without a doubt. Yeah, I it think so, I think so too. I, yeah, and, it's, and, and it can be it can be in a liquid form, and, yeah, and you can make it out of water. I mean, wherever you've got water yeah, and a little bit of electricity, of and the and the the exhaust is is water. It's not polluted. Exactly. It doesn't pollute. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. I thought you might yeah. like that info. It's a good one, John Paul. Thank you. 
And his point is really well taken. There's there are some great technologies out there that are being developed right now. And, and you know, we see this. I mean, you think about, you know, back in the back in the 50s and 60s uh, televisions, when I was watching the this uh, show on the Reagans uh, that Louise and I watched yesterday afternoon, or at least the first episode is out and they were showing the old TV cameras. And these TV cameras are just giant things because they had all these vacuum tubes in them. And and you had, a you know, the, the cathode ray tube on the on the TV sets and everything. And all of that's now done in your little iPhone. Right. I mean, that's that's technology. And we're seeing these kinds of leaps and bounds, these forward leaps in technology, in energy technology as well. It's just that, um, you know, we, there's an active disinformation campaign to keep us on fossil fuels because, you know, some people make a lot of money off that. Laguna Beach, California. Hey, Kathleen, what's up? Good morning. Hi, I listened to the um, president's speech and then that alarming report about Chevron and the rainforest. Yeah. And I'm wondering if there's anything in the works to mandate electric or solar vehicles, American-made, hopefully for municipal or government agencies. Thank you. That will be the, the thing, Kathleen. I mean, the, the, the reason why, apparently, the reason why in 2005, the Republicans got, uh, you know, all up in arms and and required the post office to prefund the health care expenses of their workers 75 years in advance. In other words, to set aside five billion dollars every single year, the post office has to in order to pay for the retirement benefits or for the health care retirement benefits of people who literally are not yet even born. The reason that they did wow. that was because about five months before the they put that into law, the post office made this big public announcement about how they were going to electrify their fleet and they have the largest individually owned fleet of vehicles in the United States is all the postal trucks and they were going to electrify that and they were going to put uh, and, and the big trucks they were going to move them over to natural gas they were basically going to clean up their emissions and uh, so and, and they could do that because they had a bunch of extra money the post office was running a real you know they were running a profit it doesn't run on our tax dollars it, it runs on you know the cost of postage and so the the republicans came in and said oh no you don't and they kneecapped the post office pulled five billion dollars a year out of their budget so now the post office is sitting on this Ridiculous. like 50 billion dollar yeah exactly but you're absolutely right if large government agencies start electrifying their fleets you know, police cars, uh, you know, uh, 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 the city buses. I mean, in many cities, it's already happened. Uh, it's, you know, here in Portland, for example, we have electric buses. Um, not all of them, obviously, but many of them. I mean, there's there's so many ways this could be done. And we had a caller a while, you know, a couple of weeks ago was talking about um, a documentary that she saw about the Chinese taxis. And I've since verified that this is actually true. In some cities in China, they're they're manufacturing cars in china where the battery is like this long square about three inches high and about you know six feet long and four feet wide is the battery for the for the car and it clips onto the bottom of the car and so literally what happens is the the the, the taxis go out and drive around for a couple of hours until they until they've run down their battery they go back to a, a place that looks kind of like a car wash they drive in, this, this robotic arm reaches up, unclips the battery, drops it down, 
The car moves forward another 10, 15 feet, and another robotic arm snaps a brand new fully charged, not brand new, but fully charged battery into the bottom of that cab and, and locks it into place. The cab comes out the other end of what looks like a car wash with a freshly charged battery and oh, yeah. can run for another three <laughs> or four hours. I mean, and China is like leading the world in this stuff. They are literally making these kind of taxis, making these kind of, you know, drive-through recharging stations where they, where they put a whole brand new fresh charge in the, in, the, in the cab in, you know, less than three minutes uh, or less than five minutes, certainly. Um, and it's just amazing. I mean, there is so much that can be done. There's so much innovation that could come out of this. Um, and we need to get, you know, with the program. You're absolutely right, Kathleen. And they need to be American-made by, by I, union labor. So let's I appreciate get your insight. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Kathleen. Thanks for the call. Step by step, we'll get there, right? But we've got to get there before we destroy the, the, the great conveyor belt and all the forests in America and around the world. Lebanon's on fire right now. Greece is on fire. China's on fire. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Animal Kind, Remarkable Discoveries About Animals and Revolutionary Ways to Show Them Compassion by Ingrid Newkirk and Jean Stone. This is from the very first chapter. Researchers at Germany's Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology were dumbfounded. The excitement wasn't over a new fossil or the discovery of a previously unknown human ancestor. It was over Rico, a border collie. In experiments conducted in 2004, the very normal-seeming 10-year-old canine had learned to fetch more than 200 objects on command, and moreover, remembered them all a month later. Determined to discover the lim lengths of, limits of Rico's abilities, the research team subjected him to a battery of cognitive tests that revealed astounding problem-solving abilities. Rico could easily retrieve from another room items he was familiar with, but when told to retrieve a new item, one he had never heard before, Rico correctly deduced that the unknown name must correspond with an unknown object and correctly retrieved it. The Border Collie's cognitive abilities were subse subsequently compared to that of apes, dolphins, parrots, and eventually human children. Researchers often end up comparing their animal subjects' intelligence to humans, but is intelligence truly easy to compare animal to human, or even animal to animal? If Rico could use the process of elimination to correctly fetch a tennis ball, does that make him smarter than an arctic tern who journeys 44,000 miles each year between the North and South Poles? Is a piano-playing cat more intelligent than a chimpanzee who shares 99% of her DNA with humans and can learn sign language? Comparing the intelligence of animals is, in fact, no easier than comparing the intelligence of humans. Who's smarter, Aristotle or Plato? Newton or Einstein? Monet or Manet? The, the red-lipped batfish or Chinese gi giant salamanders? The Indian elephant or the African elephant? In the end, ranking the relative intelligence of animals is a futile exercise. What's more, a recent study found that less than 15% of the estimated 9 million species on Earth have been discovered. Who knows what fantastical creatures reside at our ocean's crushing depths, soar high in the stratosphere, or creep deep in the densest jungles? What fantastic intelligence do they display? Or, more so, what fantastic intelligence we can't even comprehend? We often consider intelligence as the only factor in determining which animals deserve compassion and which don't. Yet we're still so limited in our understanding of human intelligence that it makes little sense to calibrate our animal brethren based on how similar their brains are to ours. Or perhaps you could say it's simply not an intelligent way to determine importance. The goal of this book is not to merely question that superiority or to show that animals think and act like us. 
It's to show how they do not and to honor those differences. How can anyone compare the metal faculties of a gibbon vaulting through the forest with a giant blue whale singing through the deepest oceans? Different animals excel at, excel at different actions. As we'll see in this book, animals think, navigate, communicate, love, and play in extraordinarily unique ways. However, for many years, scientists believed that intelligence was indeed all that mattered when it came to animals, and that intelligence consisted of a continuum with humans at the most developed end. Every other species could fit neatly into that spectrum, a concept heralded by the great naturalist Charles Darwin, who wrote in his 1871 book, The Descent of Man, that, quote, the difference in mind between man and the higher animals, great as it is, certainly is one of degree and not of kind, end quote. In essence, Darwin meant that because all animals share a common ancestor, they also share the same toolkit of mental abilities, but at different levels. Not a new idea. 2,400 years ago, Aristotle presented his idea of natural ladder, or scala natura. Uh, like Darwin, Aristotle advanced that all life could be conveniently ranked with lesser animals, like worms on one end, intermediate animals, like dogs and cats in the middle, and higher animals, such as monkeys and humans, at the far end. During the Middle Ages, Christian theologians expanded on Aristotle's teachings with the great chain of being, a hierarchical scale that began with God at the very top, followed by angels, humans, other animals, plants, and then minerals. Each layer of the chain also had its own hierarchy. Among humans, for instance, kings, aristocrats, and other noblemen were at the top, while peasants were relegated to the bottom. The highest ranking animals were large carnivores, like lions and tigers, who were untrainable and therefore seen as superior to docile animals like dogs and horses. Even insects were subdivided, with honey-producing bees ranked higher than mosquitoes and plant-eating beetles. Finally, at the very bottom sat snakes, their lowly station, a result of the serpent's de deception in the Garden of Eden. Even throughout the 20th century, scientists clung to the notion that animals could be neatly ranked by their human intelligence. Scientists devised increasingly cruel experiments that could serve as universal tests for animal cognition, many of them led by University of Wisconsin-Madison psychologist Harry Harlow. Previously, Harlow was best known for a series of experiments from the 1950s in which he removed infant rhesus monkeys from their mothers and provided them surrogate mothers made from wire. The traumatized monkeys' desperate attempts to be caressed by their inanimate mothers during times of stress became the basis for research into maternal separation, dependency needs, and social isolations. Many historians cite Harlow as a factor in the rise of subsequent animal liberation movements. Later, Harlow developed experiments called learning sets, which effectively tested how well a subject could learn. For instance, an animal would be presented with two doors, one containing food. The test would be repeated until the animal learned the correct door. Much like Aristotle's Scala Naturae, uh, it continues. Animal Kind is the book. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. 
head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Measuring What Counts, the Global Movement for Well-Being by Joe Stiglitz, Jean-Paul Fatusi, and Martine Duran. And this is from the first chapter labeled Overview. The high-level expert group on the measurement of economic performance and social progress, also known as HLEG, builds on the analyses and recommendations of the 2009 Commission on the Measurement of Economic Performance and Social Progress, also known as the Stiglitz-Senfatusi Commission, in highlighting the role of well-being metrics in policy and encouraging a more active dialogue among economic theory and statistical practice. The report makes explicit the often implicit assumptions hidden in statistical practices and their real-world consequences. Its central message is that what we measure affects what we do. If we measure the wrong thing, we will do the wrong thing. If we don't measure something, it becomes neglected, as if the problem didn't exist. There is no simple way of representing every aspect of well-being in a single number in the way GDP describes market economic output. This has led to GDP being used as a proxy for both economic welfare, like people's command over commodities, and general welfare, which also depends on people's attributes and non-market activities. GDP was not designed for this task. We need to move beyond GDP when assessing a country's health and complement GDP with a broader dashboard of indicators that would reflect the distribution of well-being in society and its sustainability across the social, economic, and environmental dimensions. The challenge is to make the dashboard small enough to be easily comprehensible, but large enough to summarize what we care about the most. The 2008 crisis and its aftermath illustrate why a change in perspective is needed. The GDP loss that followed the crisis was not the temporary one-off event predicted by conventional macroeconomic models. Its effects have lasted over time, suggesting that the crisis caused the permanent loss of significant amounts of capital, not just machines and structures, but also hidden capital in the form of lower on-the-job training, permanent scars on young people entering the labor market during a recession, and lower trust in an economic system rigged to benefit a few. Different metrics, including better measurements of people's economic insecurity, could have shown that the consequences of the recession were much deeper than the GDP statistics indicated, and governments might have responded more strongly to mitigate the negative impacts of the crisis. If, on the basis of GDP, the economy is perceived to be well on the road to recovery, as many governments believed in 2010, one would not take the strong policy measures needed to support people's living conditions suggested by metrics that inform on whether most of the population still feels in recession. Nor would one take measures to bolster the safety net and social protection in the absence of metrics on the extent of people's economic insecurity. These failings in the policy responses to the crisis 
were compounded by overly focusing on the consequences of public spending and raising government's liabilities, when this spending could take the form of investment increasing the assets in government's and country's balance sheets. The same follows when measures of unemployment do not reflect the full extent of a country's unused labor resources. The beyond GDP agenda is sometimes characterized as anti-growth, but this is not the case. The use of a dashboard of indicators reflecting what we value as a society would have led, most likely, to stronger GDP growth than that actually achieved by most countries after 2008. This book also looks at progress in implementing the recommendations of the Stiglitz-Sen-Fatusi Commission since 2009, identifying areas that require increased focus by statistical agencies, researchers, and policymakers. The UN Sustainable Development Goals, agreed by the international community in 2015, clearly go far beyond GDP. But their 169 policy targets and more than 200 indicators for global monitoring are too many to guide policies. Countries will have to identify their priorities within the broader UN agenda and upgrade their statistical capacities, which, even in developed countries, are insufficient to monitor whether the agreed-upon commitments are being met. The international community should invest in upgrading the statistical capacity of developing countries, especially in areas where country data are needed to assess global phenomena, such as climate change or the world distribution of income. Inequality in income and wealth has today a central role in policy discussions in ways it did not in 2009. But important progress is still needed in a range of areas, such as measuring what happens at both ends of the income distribution, integrating different data sources, and measuring the joint distribution of income, consumption, and wealth at the individual level. When looking at inequality, it's also important to look at differences between groups. These are called horizontal inequalities. At inequalities within households and the way resources are shared and managed, which are especially important in the case of wealth. We should also look beyond inequality in outcomes to inequality of opportunity. Inequality of opportunity is even more unacceptable than inequality of outcomes. But the operational distinction between the two is fuzzy, as we don't observe all circumstances that shape people's outcomes and are independent of their efforts. The book Measuring What Counts by Joe Stiglitz and Friends. So would you like to watch the Tom Harbin program? All three hours of our program, anytime you'd like. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Tom Hartman, T-H-O-M-H-A-R-T-M-A-N-N, all run together. When you become a supporter of the program through Patreon, you have access to the full three-hour show anytime you want and special content that we put up every single week that is unique specifically to our Patreon page. So check it out. Patreon.com slash Tom Harbin. Thank you. Okay, two quick things, and then I'm going to pick up your phone calls. Uh, number one, Kathy Griffin has revealed that she has lung cancer, and she's going to have half of her left lung removed. Uh, and she has never smoked, but she's a, she was a comedian, 
and uh, I don't know about those clubs these days, but I know back in the day they were always filled with terrible smoke. Um, but other people can can get lung cancer as well, even if they've never smoked. There's a whole bunch of other factors and variables and whatnot. But uh, I, I tweeted to her this morning, you know, best wishes and, and, you know, that you're one of the bravest among us. And she really is, uh, Kathy, Kathy Griffin. I have so much respect for her as a, as a professional, as a performer, uh, and also as, as a human being. So, and our geeky science. This is absolutely fascinating. This was published in uh, the Neurology Journal, which is a journal of the American Academy of Neurology. It was published July 28th, uh, just uh, last week. And from the study, this is uh, from Dr. W Walter Willett, MD, PhD of Harvard University. He said, there is mounting evidence suggesting flavonoids. Now, let me pause right there. The flavonoids are, by and large, the bright colored compounds in our food. The things that make blueberry blue and, and uh, blackberries black and, and uh, sweet potatoes orange and uh, lettuce green and, you know, all is colored. He says there's mounting evidence suggesting flavonoids are powerhouses when it comes to preventing your thinking skills from declining as you get older. Our results are exciting because they show that making simple changes to your diet can help prevent cognitive decline. What they found is that people who eat a diet that includes at least half a serving every day of foods high in flavonoids, strawberries, oranges, peppers, apples, stuff like that, have a 20% lower risk of cognitive decline. They specifically call out flavones and anthocyanins, which are the, the brightest colors that you'll find in these foods. And they said for long-term brain health, and they say it's never too late to start because we saw, this is a, a quote from the physician who did the study, because we saw those protective relationships, whether people were consuming the flavonoids in their diet 20 years ago, or if they started incorporating them more recently. And then they note, one limitation of the study is that some participants may not recall perfectly what they ate. Well, that's the people who weren't eating the flavonoids. <laughs> their brains weren't quite working as well. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Exposing the con and conservative. Connie in Minneapolis. Hey, Connie, what's on your mind? Line three, the Enbridge Corporation's pipeline. Mm -hmm. That if it's, that if it, is installed would be the carbon equivalent of 50 new coal plants. Oh, my God. And Kerry, I heard him talking, and he was very critical of China and other countries for installing new coal plants, but he didn't say one word about Line 3. And it's going through one of the most pristine areas left on Earth, which holds 40% of America's fresh water. There's lakes streams and rivers you can drink out of up there. Mm. And they're fracking tunnels under 69 rivers, one river five times. When their fracking chemicals leak and rise to the surface, it's called a frack out. And last I heard, there were nine frack outs, some with multiple leaks. For instance, the frack out on the Mississippi has three places leaking fracking fluid. Oh, Enbridge no. is fracking its way through 40, fracking out its way, through 40% of America's freshest fresh water. Yeah, this and is... Governor Walz 
He campaigned up in northern Minnesota saying he's honored tribal treaties when dealing with Enbridge and its then plan. But line with line three, the Department of National Natural Resources has decided to give Enbridge ten times more water than originally agreed to while northern Minnesota is in severe drought, towns and cities up there underwater restrictions. There's three treaties covering this land. Whilst in the DNR did this with hardly any tribal consultation, they had one meeting with tribal leaders about giving away five billion gallons of some of the freshest fresh water America has. It is horrifying, Minnesotan. Yeah, I can. I, I totally get it. And this is a crime against nature. It's a crime against humanity. And and uh, my understanding is much of it is just to get this heavy oil down to Texas so that the the refinery that I believe is still owned by the Coke uh, by Coke Industries uh, can turn it into into oil and sell it uh, to overseas markets, um, which is China, nuts. China, especially. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. And, yeah, they um, get the oil, we get the, we get the poisons and the toxins. Connie, thank you for bringing this up. It's an important issue. Jake in Elizabeth, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jake, what's on your mind today? Hi, Mr. Tom. I called to ask you if you had any overarching idea for how we could permanently take back our country from the oligarchs and have we the people rule. We need to get money out of politics, Jake. That's the number one cancer that's, that's uh, buried in our politics. And it came out of the Supreme Court, of course. So, which, which to me is sort of way out there in that there, the, that court can tell we the people what to do and how to live, and yeah. that's wrong. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm completely with you. And what's your overarching approach to accomplish that end? I, I, Congress can take a good chunk of this. In fact, the For the People Act has transparency requirements for dark money that, that has the right-wing billionaires just absolutely freaking out. So that's a start. Congress can take on the Supreme Court directly. In fact, Congress could start passing laws that say that the Supreme Court may not rule on this law or the Supreme Court may not strike down this law unless Congress approves. They actually have that power under Article 3, Section 2. There are a lot of things that could be done, and there's also constitutional amendments. So I don't think that we should be giving up on it, Jake. I think that there's a lot, you know, a long way to go and a lot of work to do here. And we need to take this very, very seriously. Jake, thanks a lot for the call. Thank you for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. In the meantime, please, let's never forget that democracy really is. I mean, you know, demos, right? The people. Democracy is about us. It's about we, the people. And it doesn't work when we just sit back and expect other people are going to make the phone calls, other people are going to join the organizations, other people are going to get inside the political parties, other people are going to support progressive media. We, we just, you know, it doesn't work that way. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 